Welcome to the Believe and Follow podcast. The entire Word of God may be summed up with these three words, Believe and Follow. The method God has always chosen to deal with mankind is this. God makes promises and gives instructions. He expects us to believe His promises and follow His instructions. The goal of this podcast is to make this simple truth clear and dispel the false teachings that are so commonly accepted as true. I'm your host, James Rattazzi. In the fullness of time, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be the living personification of the truth. Jesus promises forgiveness and eternal life to all who follow him. You may agree or disagree with all or some of what you hear in this podcast, All are welcome to email in their suggestions or comments. If you have a suggestion for a guest on the podcast, or even if you would like to appear as a guest, email me at james at believeandfollow.org. Welcome to Episode 2. We'll be continuing the discussion we started in Episode 1 and look at some of the questions and comments that discussion produced. This week we have Keith Sharp as a guest. Keith Sharp is presently a preacher and elder at the Highway 5 South Church of Christ in Mountain Home, Arkansas. He also publishes a monthly email newsletter on Bible topics called Meditate on These Things and has a website called ChristIsTheWay.com. He also has a podcast at SharpSermons.org. We spoke by phone. You may notice some stylistic differences between Keith and myself. I'm hoping you also noticed we're delivering the same message. Let me know what you think. From the last podcast, we learned that a fundamental quality of God is unity. A fundamental quality of mankind is diversity. How do we reconcile those two? So what I wanted to do is to flesh out the picture of unity a little bit more than what I presented in the first podcast. I mentioned Ephesians 4 and what was helpful from Ephesians 4 for the point I was making in the last podcast, but I basically stopped at verse 3. And I didn't continue any further than that because that's what I needed for my point. And noticing the comments that I received from the answers to my three questions in the beginning, People who are not so well-versed in the Bible, when I say that we should have unity, sometimes they picture in their mind that I'm saying uniformity. They picture in their mind a bunch of people that are all dressed in the same uniform and lined up like troops. 
And, right. of, and of course, quite quickly, the Apostle Paul goes into dispelling that idea because in verse 4 where he says, there is one body and one spirit just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But then in verse 7 he says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So I want to expand on that idea that we're one but we're not the same. You can take it from there if you like. Well, that's fine. That's not the passage I would use. Right. You would go to 1 Corinthians 12, perhaps? Last Sunday, I preached on a sermon that I was entitled, Each Member. All I did was go through 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 14. Okay. Going down to verse 27. Do you want to go through that? I think that's a good idea. Okay, well, I'll, I'll just begin in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 14, and read and comment uh, from the New King James Version. Sounds good. Okay, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 14, for in fact the body is not one member, but many. Now the word member there is used in the way we would use the word part. Your body is not composed of just one part. It's composed of many parts, uh, and each part has its own function. And so it is in the body of Christ, the church, each member has his own function. And uh, so uh, beginning now in verse 15, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? Now, this is a humorous figure of speech that, that Paul is using. Suppose your foot could talk, and your foot's feeling sorry for itself, uh, and, and your foot's being jealous of the hand, and the foot could say, the hand can do all ki kinds of things that I can't do. The hand has fingers that can grasp things uh, and, and can, can write or can type or, or can uh, drive... Uh, pick up a hammer, drive a nail, and, and I'm just a foot, I can't do those things. And, of course, the reply is, well, the foot's needed to do what it can do. Uh, you would be uh, a, uh, in bad shape if you went through life without your feet. You'd have a hard time getting anywhere. And so, no, the foot cannot do what the hand can do, but the foot's needed to do what it can do. Uh, and in verse 16, if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye... I'm not of the body. Is it therefore not of the body? Well, suppose that uh, your ear could talk and your ear's feeling sorry for itself. And your ear says, you know, uh, the eye can see the beauty of the sunset, the beauty of the sunrise, and the eye can see the beauty of the flowers. Uh, the eye can see things that are coming and forewarn the body uh, that danger is approaching. I can't do any of those things, so I'm not needed. Well, no. The ear cannot do what the eye can do. The eye has the, the sense of sight, but the ear has the sense of hearing. Uh, and without your sense of hearing, uh, then you would be handicapped. As we get older, our hearing gets worse, uh, and, and it's a handicap because we uh, cannot understand sometimes what people are saying. We might not hear something approaching from uh, our rear uh, that would be dangerous, uh, whereas somebody that has acute hearing can, can be forewarned those things are coming. So again, the fact is, no, 
The ear cannot do what the eye can do, but the ear is needed to do what it's capable of doing. Uh, Verse 17, if the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? Uh, And again, it's a humorous figure speech. If your body was just one great big eyeball, well, the government could use you as an early warning system. Uh, You could see uh, remarkably well. But what else could you do? Nothing at all. Uh, If the whole body were hearing, well, again, your hearing would be remarkable, but there there would be nothing else. Uh, You wouldn't be able to smell, to use the figure speech that Paul is using here. So the point is, uh, each member of the body is needed to do what it can do, just as is in the human body, Every part of the body has its own function and is needed to do not what somebody else, what some other member can do, uh, and, and not what it's not able to do, but only to do what God designed it to do. And so each member of the body of Christ is needed to do what he or she has the ability to do. Verse 18, but now God has set the members, each one of them in the body, just as he pleased. Now, when somebody complains about, well, I don't have the ability to lead singing, or I don't have the ability to teach class, or I don't have the ability to be a public speaker, and they're complaining about what they don't have the ability to do, just remember, God gave us what abilities we have. He des- just as he designed the human body, he designed the body of Christ. And whatever abilities we have, that's what we're to use in the way that the body needs, as is authorized by the Lord in his word. Verse 19, and if they were all one member, where would the body be? If your body was just one part, where's the body? If every member of the church was a preacher, who are we going to preach to? If every member of the church is an elder, who are we going to lead? If every member of the church is a song leader, who are we going to lead again? Each member is needed to do what that person can do. Now, so that takes care of the one who's feeling sorry for himself because he can't do what someone else can do. But now beginning in verse 20, he reverses it. Now he's talking about the one who has great ability looking down on someone who has less ability. So let's begin in verse 20. But now indeed there are many members yet one body, just as your human body is composed of many parts, many members, but it's a unitary body, and every member is to function together, so also is the Lord's church, and so also is the local church. Verse 21, And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Well, your eye could say to the hand, you can't see anything, uh, you can't do what I can do. I don't need you. Well, the hand could reply, well, next time something's coming to injure you, see if I uh, uh, defend you from that. No, uh, the eye cannot look down on the hand. Uh, suppose your head could say to your feet, well, you dummies, you never had a thought in your life. I have to direct you everywhere you go. Well, the feet could reply, well, see if you get there without us. Uh, no, the, the uh, feet cannot do what the head can do, but the feet are needed to do what God designed them to do. So the head can't uh, look down on the feet, figuratively speaking, of course, nor can the eye look down on the hands, again, figuratively speaking. Verse 22, no much rather those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. There's no part of our body that's more easily injured than the eye. 
but the eyes necessary. We have, of course, someone who, without their eyes or without their eyesight has the handicap of blindness, and that's perhaps one of the greatest handicaps that people can have is to be blind. And so that member of the body is weak, it's easily injured. But, you know, God designed the body to protect the eye. Uh, the eyes encased within bone. Uh, we have eyelashes. We have eyebrows. We have eyelids. All of those to protect the eye. Uh, and if an object is coming toward our face, uh, we don't open our eyes and close our mouths. We do just the opposite. We close our eyes and, uh, and open our mouths, and our hands go over our eyes to protect our eyes. We do everything to protect that weak member, and so it should be in the church. There are members who are weak, and those members we need to be protecting and trying to lift up and trying to uh, encourage. Verse 23, And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, on these we bestow greater honor, and our unpresentable parts have greater modesty. For our Verse 24, But our presentable parts have no need. And I will stop there. And so in the human body, parts of the body are not presentable. We cover them up. Uh, and, and parts of the body, uh, and I think probably women are more this way than men, or not necessarily, uh, parts of the body which we think they're not as beautiful, we try to beautify those parts of the body. Well, uh, and that's the way we should be, again, in caring for those members who are weaker, then we do what we can to lift them up, to make them more beautiful in the sight of God by leading them through their weakness, their sins, helping them to overcome their sins, to repent. And thus, again, uh, verse 24, God composed the body, having given greater honor to that part which lacks it. You know, the thing about it is those weak members are the members that we pay the most attention to. Uh, sometimes uh, people might resent that, but that's the way it should be because we're trying to save them just as we want to be saved ourselves. That leads into the third part of this passage, verses 25 through 27, where he talks about there should be no division of the body. He uses the word schism, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 25, that there should be no schism in the body. The word schism literally means a rent or a tear. When Jesus gave the figure speech about putting new wine into old wineskins unless they tear. And that's that word schism. And we know that a tear in our bodies, a rip in the body, it would be extremely painful. If, if we cut ourselves with a knife, uh, then that's very, very painful. And so it is in the body of Christ. A schism, a rent, a tear, a division. It's very, very painful to Christ, who is the head of the body. He doesn't want that to happen. So there should be no schism in the body, but the members should have the same care for one another. Every member of the body should care about every other member of the body. In the local church, we all need to know each other. Now, of course, that begins by being at all of the worship assemblies, but it also uh, includes visiting before the worship assembly, visiting after the worship assembly, being in contact with each other through the week, finding out one another's weaknesses that we can help one another on, finding out the needs, the heartaches, the setbacks, the, the concerns that each member of the body has, and then trying to encourage each other on those things. And thus he says in verse 26, if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. 
Now, you might be uh, trying to uh, uh, drive a, a nail into a board, and, and, and you might swing and miss the nail and hit your thumbnail. Well, you, you don't gloat against your thumbnail and say, ha-ha, you had it coming, you should have been in the way. Your entire body suffers when that one member of the body suffers. And so it is in the body of Christ. If one member is going through heartache, a financial setback, a, uh, a loss of a loved one, health problems, then every member of the body needs to be suffering with that member who is suffering, that we have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. One member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Instead of being jealous, if another uh, Christian, another member of the body receive some kind of an honor, we ought to be feel like we're honored to, you know, if my children receive an honor, I like that better than if I receive an honor because of my love for them, and, and I rejoice with them in their rejoicing. Thus he concludes by saying, now you are the body of Christ and members individually. Individually, we're all parts of the same body. And so that's the unity that comes much difference. Everybody has their own function, but we're all tied together in bonds of love and mutual need. I think that exactly delivers the message. There are two comments I wanted to make. I'll give each one individually, and then you can comment on them. This is a very compelling figure, but those of us who are well-versed in the Bible, you know, regular church-attending people, we've heard this a million times, and it tends to lose its impact, don't you think? Oh, of course, yes. We have to be reminded. So we should think about it and think what it really means if the function is a body. And I don't know what the experience is where you are, but my experience where I am is generally we don't see churches functioning that way. Uh, that is the description of a mature congregation that is the way it should be. We should all be striving for that individually and as a congregation to have that mutual care, that mutual need, uh, each one doing what he has the ability to do and appreciating those who have other abilities. I think that's exactly right. And I don't think I'm stepping too far outside the metaphor when I make the point that not only is it described how we should be caring for one another, but also how we should be relating to one another as far as getting things done. Like, for example, if the hand wants to do something that needs to go right, but the arm wants to go left, well, how's that going to work? Yes. And again, that's, that's uh, having that uh, unity there. We're all uh, functioning to accomplish the same end. And to continue that metaphor of the body, which, of course, is a very prominent metaphor in the New Testament. Paul uses it in Ephesians. He uses it in Romans. He uses it in 1 Corinthians. Uh, is the head directs every function of the body. Uh, and, of course, the head of the body is Christ, Ephesians 1, and 23. And... Uh, when any part of the body is not functioning as the head directs, then it's being counterproductive. And with a body, it comes natural that the head is controlling, well, with most of our bodies anyway. And the to continue that figure speech, James. Sure. Uh, if, if some parts of my body 
do not function in the way that the head directs the, the head directs them to do something and they don't do it. That's called paralysis. That's mm-hmm. a serious, serious malady. Or uh, if uh, the body is doing something, the head is there's involuntary movements. Uh, there, there's a young man in the congregation here now who has a problem with involuntary body movement. Well, that, that is a, a real problem that he's going to have to overcome. Uh, and, and there can be the, the shaking that, that comes, for example, with various diseases. It's called, be called palsy. And those are involuntary movements where the body is, not, is moving when the uh, head does not direct. Well, now, to make the application... Uh, if uh, if we fail to do uh, what the head directs us to do, then that's the sin of omission. We're failing to do what uh, what the Lord directs us to do. Or if we do what the Lord is not directed to do, then we're acting without His authority. Uh, that that's the sin of commission. We're doing things that uh, the Lord has not given us permission to do, and so that's uh, directly parallel to the head being that which directs every function of the body. In order for us to apply this picture to the local church, we have to focus on what the head is telling us to do. That's exactly right. And so how do we do that? Well, it goes right back to Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. We must make sure that we have permission from Christ, that we're authorized by him to do everything that we do. Without that authority, we dare not act. That's exactly correct. And this past Wednesday, I was having a discussion in my Bible discussion group with some of the people who attend that, and I was discussing a follow-up conversation to the first podcast episode. And we got on a discussion of the fact that the church that we see today doesn't resemble the picture that's being painted in the New Testament. And I also noticed that some of the people there were discussing the church and saying, well, the pastor is the one that directs where the church goes. And two people made comments about the pastor. So I said, well, you know, you realize that that model for a local church is not consistent with the New Testament. That in many churches we see that's the structure. It's run by one person who's the preacher, and you call the preacher the pastor, and he's running the church. And I said, that's not the model that we see in the New Testament. And then someone made the comment And he posed the question, is this the only way to do it, or is this just an example that's being given? In other words, is that the only way to do it? And I went to Colossians 3.17 to answer that. Well, let's let's go to Acts 14. Uh, This is Paul and Barnabas on Paul's first journey of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. Mm -hmm. And they have... They've completed their journey, and now they're starting back through some of the cities that they'd already been through. Uh, I'm going to begin in verse 21. Uh, And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned. So so they've, they've reached now the end of their journey. And so they're going at Derby, and they're going back through the congregations, through the cities where they'd already been, to Lystra, 
Iconium and Antioch. Now, we always, or we, many times, people think of this happening very quickly, but this could have taken and did take uh, quite some time. Uh, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and saying we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. So, now here's what I'm getting to. Verse 23. When they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Elders in every church, in every congregation, is the Lord's pattern. If a congregation does not have elders, then it is not complete as a congregation. It's not reached the maturity that it should have in Christ Jesus. In every church where they had been before, they came back through and appointed elders. Uh, there's, there's different states in which a church can exist a local, when it comes to organization. A local church can be scripturally unorganized, meaning it has no elders and no men yet qualified to be elders. Now, that church ought to be striving with all its power to get men qualified to be elders by a program of edification. A, a congregation can be scripturally organized. It can have men qualified to be elders, and those men have been appointed to the office of elders, and they are the ones who are the leaders of the local church. Now, on the other hand, there's two ways a congregation organization can be unscriptural. They can be unscripturally unorganized. They can have men qualified to be elders, but the congregation refuses to appoint them to the office. In that uh, case, they're unscripturally unorganized. The pattern is elders in every church. Or they can be unscripturally organized. They can have men appointed to the office who are not qualified for the office. And in that case, they're unscripturally organized. So that's the four states that a congregation can exist in when it comes to organization. But the Lord's pattern is elders in every church. And this speaks some to those points that I mentioned in the first podcast also, that when we're coming to the gospel, we're coming with our own preconceived notions of what it looks like. Everyone what the, Yeah, what the church looks Everyone like. Does. Everyone does, exactly. And so we have to f- begin to understand what's being told to us and separate that, separate what's from God and what's from man. What's from my culture, much of that is from man. So the person that says, well, but the church that I grew up in was run by a pastor. Isn't that okay? The answer would be... No. Let's stay in Acts uh, in the book of Acts. Okay. Now go to Acts chapter twenty, and uh, look first of all at verse seventeen. Now this this is Paul as he's coming to the end of his third journey, and it says from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. Or we've already seen that Paul appointed a plurality of men elders. In every church, and always there's no exception to this. Whenever the, it speaks of elders, it's always in the plural in the local church. Never just one man, always a plurality. Every time the word is used in the New Testament, it's in the, it's in the plurality. So there was a plurality of elders mm-hmm. in the church 
in Ephesus that Paul called to Miletus to speak to him. Now skip down uh, in that same context to verse 28. Now he's talking to the elders, plural, of the church in Ephesus. Notice what he tells them. Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Now the, I, I'm reading the New King James. It's, it, it's a... Um, it's a weakness of our English translations, most all of them, is that if they take the same Greek word and it's rendered by different words, which confuse the English readers on what those words are. And that's true here. The word, therefore, overseers, is the Greek word episkopos. That's where the, the uh, Episcopal Church gets, it name, gets its name, from the Greek word episkopos, which in some places is translated bishops. But here it's correctly translated to overseers. That's the meaning of the word, is overseers. But it's the same word that is, is otherwise translated bishops. And so elders and bishops or overseers are the same thing. And there was a plurality of them, not just one, a plurality of them in the church in Ephesus. But reading on in verse 28, to shepherd the church of God, which is purchased with his own blood. Well, that word shepherd, is the Greek word uh, poimen, which is the verb form of the noun for pastor. The same word that's found in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. It gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. That's the noun form. This is the verb form. Shepherds or pastors is the, are the same thing. And... Those are just different descriptions of the same office, whether they're called elders or overseers or shepherds. And remember, overseers is the same word as bishops. Shepherds are the sa is the same word as pastors. So there's, there's five English words, three Greek words, for the same office. They show different aspects of the same office, but there's always a plurality. There's never one. And it's always in the local church. It's not over a number of congregations, but always in one local congregation. They're elders. That, mean, that shows the, the qualification. They're older men, mature in the faith. They are overseers. That means they're the men that make the decisions for the church. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, it says they rule. It also says that uh, in Hebrews chapter 13. So they're the ones who make the decisions. Now, they cannot be lords over God's heritage. They don't just lead it the way they want to do. They lead it, first of all, they, they find out the desires and the needs of the congregation and make decisions that are in harmony, first of all, with the needs of the congregation and then with the desires of the congregation, but above all, in harmony with the will of Christ. So they're, they're the ones who rule. They're overseers. And then they're shepherds. Uh, they, as Peter says, they watch for your souls. That's in 1 Peter chapter 5. Or excuse me, it's in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. They watch for your souls as those who must give account that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. That's Hebrews 13, verse 17. So that shows the spiritual aspect of the work. They're watching for the souls of the members, just as a shepherd watches for the sheep the elders or the pastors 
uh, are they watch for are the overseers they watch for the souls of the members of the church but it's all the same office five english words three greek words one office a plurality in each local church I think that's exactly right. And you began to mention 1 Peter chapter 5, but 1 Peter chapter 5 is another one of those spots, just like in Acts 20 here, where the same set of words is used to apply to the same position of elders. Yes, there's two passages. There's Acts 20 and 1 Peter 5, where the same three words are all used to describe the same office. So the way the question was put is like, so these examples are given, but are they binding instructions? And my answer would be, well, first of all, God placed this information in his word. Secondly, you see it appearing a number of different times to reinforce the pattern. So it doesn't have to appear in the form of a command for us to take it as a command from God. Well, that's right. There's six different New Testament passages that tell us to follow the example of the apostles as well as their commands. I'm going to give you a couple of them. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 17, Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. So we not only are to follow the example of the apostles, we're to follow the example of the New Testament church as is described in the New Testament by the apostles and the prophets. And then in Philippians chapter 4, verse 9, the things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. So New Testament examples are equally binding with New Testament commands. Wednesday night, I didn't come up with these ones in Philippians. I mentioned 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, where the Apostle Paul says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Yes, and, and, but my favorite one is Philippians 3, 17. Yeah, I think because that's much better. Not only, shows, yeah, not only shows to follow the example of the Apostles, but also the example of the first century church as is recorded by the Apostles. Now, uh, I hasten to add, there are negative examples found in the New Testament also, but they're clearly identified mm -hmm. as negative examples. Uh, for example, there's the lie of Ananias and Sapphira, but that's clearly identified as sin. Right. There's also uh, the Apostle Peter acting the part of the hypocrite in Galatians 2, but Paul rebuked him to his face. And so where there's a negative example, it's clearly identified as a negative example. I think that's exactly right. It's interesting because that was not a question I expected to proceed from the first lesson. And you know, some people are very confused. I just, uh, I hope this will tie in what we're talking about. When it comes to the authority, first of all, there's no such thing as a one-man pastor system in the New Testament. Uh, in fact, it's interesting to me, James, I'm, I'm rereading presently uh, Philip Schaff's nine-volume work, History of the Christian Church. It's the greatest, probably the greatest history of, of Christendom that has ever written. Uh, at the, it was written towards the end of the 19th century, so it doesn't cover any of the 20th and 21st century. But 
Philip Schaff, though he was a member of the Church of England, makes the point that in the first century church, there was not one bishop over a church, and certainly not one bishop over a plurality of churches, but that the word, just as we pointed out in this study, that the words bishop or overseer, uh, elder and pastor or shepherd are used interchangeably, and there's a plurality in each local congregation. And, and this great scholar, though he was a member of the Church of England, points that out that's the way that the, the first century church was organized. And it was not until the second century that there was one bishop over local church, and it was further in the second century that there was one bishop over a plurality of churches. So the historical record backs up the conclusion that we're making that these patterns are a departure from the faith. There's no doubt about that. And, and, and even though uh, Philip Schaff was a member of the, Christ, uh, excuse me, of, of the Church of England, uh, which has one bishop over the entire church, you know, the, the uh, 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 well, I can't call it the bishop of, and I can't call the name of the place where it's the bishop, Canterbury. but at any rate, West, Westminster. Um, Canterbury, thank you. That's what I was uh, going to say, Canterbury, yeah. Well, you're sorry. right, you're correct, that's right. And, and he's, he's the head, under the, the, the queen, he's the head of the Church of England. Well, uh, so he was a member of that church, that denomination, which has bishops over a plurality of churches and one bishop over the entire church, and yet he recognized that's not the way the New Testament church was organized. Exactly, and we've already made the point that we need to follow that example if we're going to call ourselves a church of Christ. That's exactly right. And if we're going to be pleasing to the Lord, we've got to go back and follow the pattern of the first century church. As Paul put it in 2 Timothy 1, verse 13, hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. That phrase, hold fast, means to keep, to retain, to steadfastly adhere to. And that's the way Thayer's Greek lexicon defines the phrase. Hopefully, this episode has added clarity to some of the concepts we touched on in the first episode. But this is all we have time for this week. We'll continue the discussion in next week's episode, so let me know your questions or comments. You can email me at james at believeandfollow.org. Till next week, goodbye and God bless. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine. Sweeter also than honey